Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Mr. Singh, your response first, please, to the federal government's announcement, Afghan interpreters for the Canadian Armed Forces and other Afghan nationals who worked with and served with Canadians and served Canada's interests during the NATO mission in Afghanistan will be brought to this country. What are your thoughts? That's right. I think we absolutely did. And I think that's uh, uh, one of the things that makes us a special place that we can do that. And to be able to provide that, that opportunity for folks to, to get support and to be able to leave a place where there's a lot of troubling news and, and serious uh, risk to people is, is a good thing. Yeah. The sexual misconduct issue in the CAF is dragging along with Mr. Trudeau insisting he knew nothing of the 2018 encounter between then uh, CAF Ombudsman Gary Walborn and the Minister of National Defense, Arjit Sajjan. Do you believe Mr. Trudeau? And what is your reaction to reports on Global News that Mr. Sajjan told the military to create a position eventually filled by a reserve officer from his old unit who had been suspended from the Vancouver police for an inappropriate relationship with a subordinate? This is according to briefing notes. What are your thoughts on that? I think that it, this uh, this has been a colossal mess for the Liberals. They, they, uh, and the and the Conservatives, frankly, both are where where are the problems in the military. This is well known that there were problems, and there was a Deshaun report, which is starting to feel a lot like deja vu. This is a Supreme Court justice from the Supreme Court of Canada, who does a report into the problems in the military, and finds primary recommendation that there is no way for people to raise complaints, to raise problems, other than going to their superior officer. And that is a massive problem. If you look around the world, uh, no other military or many other militaries have an alternative mean, which is an independent process. That was the Justice Deschamps' number one re- recommendation. And to this date, six years later, Trudeau has not done that. Uh, it is squarely at the feet of uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, Justin Trudeau, that he could have put in place that instead of actually dealing with the problem, this this culture that is, is dangerous to women and uh, a complete lack of independent process forward. What we have is another report by another justice of the Superior Court. And now the, the justice of the Superior Court has incredible experience and is going to do a great job. But why have another report when you have not implemented the first? And what message does this all this send to women? The fact that if a woman brings up a problem and it makes it to the highest office of the land, and instead of anything happening, they're fighting over who knew what when. That is a shame, and it sends a chilling message, not to just women in the military, but to all women, that they can raise concerns and no one's going to listen to them. So let's talk about a broad concern that is raised in this country, and you raise it on a regular basis. You have this week particularly. Would you speak to the issue of racism in Canada, individual and systemic racism? Where do you see racism engaged and by whom? Well, there is there is systemic racism that, that people experience, and we see it in the treatment, uh, in particular recently the rise in anti-Asian hate, there have been lots of stories. I had a constituent. I have a constituent from Burnaby South. Uh, her mom goes for walks. She's of Asian descent. And she called her mom. She shared this with me and told her, Mom, I, I don't think you should be taking your evening walks anymore. With the, with the increase in violence against uh, Asian women in particular, 
We're seeing uh, Muslim women who are being faced with violence, their hijab being torn off. And uh, in London, the, the killing, uh, the massacre really of an entire family in Ottawa or in Quebec City, again, uh, a targeted killing of Muslims while they were praying. There's clearly a problem of hate on the rise. And there's clearly a systemic uh, problem where there we see in policing services or in security services that the real and urgent threat to Canadians' lives are coming from white supremacist groups or extreme right-wing groups that are that are sowing these messages of division, are radicalizing people, and uh, they are not really receiving any scrutiny. They're not being dismantled. They're not receiving the uh, the attention that that is required, and uh, we're seeing disproportionate stopping of people that are racialized just because of the color of their skin. Indigenous people continue to be mistreated by police. So. These are ongoing and real issues, and uh, sometimes while we are better than other nations in some ways, I think the problem with Canadians is we're sometimes too polite to accept and confront the realities of the challenges that we're up against. And I think one of the positive things, though, is that Canada is up to the challenge, and I feel like people want things to be better, and we can make things better. What do you mean when you say the ultra-rich must pay their fair share in taxes? Now, I get the soundbite, Mr. Singh, but beyond the soundbite, what are you proposing specifically? Well, a host of measures. Really, the, the principle is when we look at this pandemic, a lot of people are wondering who's going to pay for the pandemic and who's going to pay for the recovery. And it's a legitimate question because after difficult times, we've seen two approaches have been really the go-to game plan for previous federal governments, liberal or conservative, either there is a period of austerity where services and help the people need is cut, or the burden is increased on the people that have actually already suffered, workers and middle class and small businesses, then see an increase in their taxes. I'm proposing a third option. That's to say we know that people, uh, large, wealthy corporations, make money off the backs of Canadians, take that money all profits made in Canada off of Canadians and hide it in offshore bank accounts, and it's completely legal to do so. We want to end those loopholes and, and take on those that are hiding their wealth and not paying their fair share. You know, regu- every, everyday workers pay their fair share, but the ultra-rich get away with not doing that. So when I mean ultra-rich, people who use offshore, tank, uh, offshore uh, bank accounts, offshore accounts to hide their, their wealth, those are people I'm talking about. I'm also talking about Amazon, a company that made record profits in this pandemic but virtually pays no taxes in Canada. That should not be allowed to continue. And Canadians are frustrated. I'm hearing a lot of people saying, you know, we've seen the the billionaires go to space and enjoy all this massive wealth. Uh, The richest Canadian billionaires, 44 of them, increased their wealth by 70 billion in this pandemic. They should be contributing their fair share. And their fair share means not having loopholes that allow them to hide their wealth. That means making sure they contribute fairly And we've got a host of ways to do that. So let me bring this down to the street level. You're also calling for an immediate increase of the minimum wage federally. Do you think that after coming out of the pandemic, and we're not out yet, with the CFIB telling us repeatedly up to 250,000 small businesses are in danger of not surviving, that increasing the minimum wage should be extended to all businesses, including small businesses? And if so, how is that sustainable for people who've told me they were keeping employees on the payroll by using up their own and personal credit lines. Are you looking at extending the minimum wage, raising the minimum wage for the small business community in this country? 
Well, what we're doing is that we want to set the leadership by saying that at the federal level, we can impose or we can put in place a federally regulated minimum wage. And, and we think that it should be a decent wage. And we want to set an example with that. But with the small business example that you raised, I think it's really important to highlight that in this pandemic, big box stores were able to continue to operate, did all right. But it's really small businesses that were hardest hit. So we laid out a plan saying for small businesses, specifically for those that qualify as small business, we want to see the supports like the wage subsidy and the rent subsidy continue for those small businesses so they can continue to have the help they need. And the way we pay for that is, again, to make sure the large corporations, the wealthy Amazons and Netflix and Googles and, and companies that hide their wealth in offshore tax havens, they contribute their fair share and we invest that into helping those who need support the most. So I would continue, it's a part of our jobs plan, I would continue supports for small businesses past uh, the end point that the Liberals have proposed and to help those that need it most, these small businesses that have suffered a lot during the pandemic. Would you uh, be in favor then of larger federal deficits and not necessarily to be too concerned about spiring national debt? Well, I understand the concern, and, and the concern is is people start wondering, well, if these these uh, this debt and deficit continue, who's going to pay for it? And that's why I answer that question by saying we do need to continue investing people. We can't cut those investments. So if we're not going to cut the investments, and we certainly don't believe in increasing the burden on people who've already suffered, that's why we're proposing this third option. There's significant revenue that the Parliamentary Budget Office has pointed out with our plan of taxing the ultra-rich. There's lots of revenue that we can raise. We can use that to invest more in people and to pay down our deficit or pay down our debt. Yeah, Mr. Mr. Singh, the residential schools issue, it is very difficult to accept that Canada had a policy of residential schools mm. until 1996. And I've twice recently spoken with Chief Cadmus Delorme of Cowess's First Nation on this program, as well as with Jody Wilson-Raybould, whose departure from Parliament you tweeted you're sad to see. How do you, mm-hmm. Mr. Singh, approach the issue of reconciliation Keeping the residential schools issue in mind, what do you do? It's, it's heartbreaking. And I think it really hit Canadians with the first discovery, the 215 in Kamloops. It really rocked a lot of Canadian sensibility because it was a way to be confronted with the real painful reality of residential schools in a way that I don't think a lot of Canadians ever had confronted before. We were having some conversations about this. And we thought about, I thought about the grade schools that I went to in Windsor, Ontario. And the thought that there would be a grave site on my elementary school, you know, no Canadian that has gone to a major city elementary school has a grave site on their actual elementary school's school site. Uh, it's really an example of what these institutions really were. They were institutions that were a part of the genocide of Indigenous people. There's no other way to put it. And it's, it's something that is painful. But the beautiful in this really horrible moment is that Canadians are starting to demand for justice. They're saying we can't just grieve and mourn the loss. We have to do something about it. And that to me is really hopeful that Canadians want to see justice. So what do we do? We need to make sure that every child is brought back home. Every single child that was, that lost his or her life in a, in a residential institution has to be able to be brought back home. Every community should have the ability to investigate any burial sites those communities need supports for the trauma. I've spoken to people that are still reeling from the trauma. It's reopened a lot of wounds. Survivors, and many of them that you mentioned, 1996 wasn't that long ago. There's a lot of survivors, and they think about those that didn't make it home and those that they thought maybe ran away, and maybe instead of running away, they actually lost their lives. So 
We've got to deal with the trauma. There's calls to action, 94 of them. The Liberal government promised to implement them. They've only done a fraction. We need to implement all those calls to action. Okay, so why you instead of Justin Trudeau? You're gaining on him as far as popularity polls are concerned, Mm -hmm. but why you instead of Justin Trudeau? And do you believe Mr. Trudeau has difficulty telling the truth to Canadians about his own and his government's actions? For example, do you believe Mr. Trudeau has been truthful about SNC-Lavalin and Jody Wilson-Raybould, do you believe he's been truthful about his and his government's actions involving We Charity? A very heavy question. I think a very important question. I'll start with the why me. I would say I have in my life experienced a lot of the struggles that Canadians continue to experience. I remember what it's like to struggle in life. I've had to struggle. I remember what it's like to deal with financial difficulty. There was a time when my father who was a very successful physician, was uh, dealing with uh, a struggle with addiction. It meant that we lost everything. He lost his savings. We lost our home. And we didn't have a place to live for a bit. I remember being a young man, uh, the eldest in my family, having to provide for my family, care for my brother when I was in university, and get him into high school and support him through schooling. While my friends were having a fun university lifestyle, I was kind of the surrogate father of a young uh, teenage boy. And, and I had to step up and provide that support. There was a time where I was the only income su- supporter of my family. And, and as, a, as a young lawyer, I was the one paying all the bills at 26, 27, supporting a household of my mom and my dad and my, my brother. Yeah, and so sister. clearly your life was not a parallel to Mr. Trudeau's. <laughs> right. But let's get to this issue of Mr. Trudeau being truthful with Canadians. Mm. Um, mm. Again, SNC-Lavalin, Jody Wilson-Raybould, the WE Charity. Do you believe he's being truthful or do you think he's being less than truthful? I believe what, what he has shown is a pattern of behavior where he helps out his close friends and very powerful at the top. And so in each of those examples, SNC-Lavalin, uh, a corporation that in the past had been linked to illegal donations to the Liberal Party, and the WE Charity, close friends that he helped out. But the big problem is each one of those incidents in helping out these companies, he hurts people. With We Charity, it was supposed to be about helping students and young people. He ended up hurting them because there's no help that was delivered. At the end of the day, there was a billion dollars that was supposed yeah. to be invested. In, in the interest of time, people. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but in the interest of yeah, time, no problem, no problem. is he being truthful with Canadians, yes or no? Uh, I, don't, I think that he is choosing the ultra-rich and the wealthy over Canadians. I think he's not telling the full story, but it's not just about not telling the full story. It's about who he's choosing when he votes against things, when he votes against taxing the ultra-rich or votes against Pharmacare or supports We Charity. These are all examples of helping the powerful and hurting people. Okay, so he's not telling the truth. Mr. Singh, what about you differentiating yourself from Aaron O'Toole? Well, interesting examples. Each of those things that I mentioned in the taxing the ultra-rich, which I think a lot of Canadians agree with, it was, when we put that motion forward, it was uh, Justin Trudeau and Aaron O'Toole, liberals and conservatives, who teamed up to vote against that. When we said we should get rid of for-profit, starting with Rivera, which is owned by a federal agency and should be public, it should be about care for our loved ones, not about profit, it was Aaron O'Toole and Justin Trudeau that voted against getting profit out of long-term care. When we said that pharmacare example I gave you and uh, something that Canadians believe makes a lot of sense, it was again Aaron O'Toole and Justin Trudeau that teamed up to vote against pharmacare. So on a lot of these really important things to Canadians, taxing the rich, medication coverage for all, and long-term care that cares for our loved ones. Mr. Trudeau and Mr. O'Toole both took the side of the, the for-profit long-term care, the pharmaceutical companies, and the ultra-rich against people. 
And so we can make a clear distinction. Our focus is, is always on people. All right. Climate change. Do you support additional carbon taxes? I support a price on pollution that actually tax or puts the price or puts the burden on the on the biggest polluters. The price of pollution that uh, Mr. Trudeau has implemented actually exempts some of the biggest polluters. And I think that's a big problem. We need to take on the biggest polluters. We need to protect our land, air and water. We've seen forest fires ravaging BC. I've in my home riding of Burnaby South. There have been massive heat waves, the likes of which we've never seen. People lost their life because they're not used to these type of temperatures in the lower mainland of BC. So we know the impact of these of these forest fires right now in Toronto. We're here. We're we're still a couple of days past. We're having smoke in the city because of the forest fires in northern Ontario. These are directly caused by climate crisis, and we've got to take it on. And the way to do that is not to put the burden on families that are struggling, but to put the burden on the biggest polluters. Alberta Justice Minister Casey Madhu is calling on Ottawa to allow individual people to carry pepper spray in order to defend themselves against premeditated racist and other attacks. At present, defending yourself with pepper spray is an offense under Canada's criminal code. And I keep saying, and I know it's going to irritate some people, but it's a play on words, because pepper spray is an irritant. It's not a 44 Magnum. Minister, how are you? Thanks for coming on the program. Thank you so much, Roy, and for having me. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Would you share what caused you to take the decision to seek an amending of the criminal code to permit the carrying of pepper spray by individuals? You know, Roy, we have seen an increase in hate-motivated crimes against mostly vulnerable Albertans. And we, at the provincial level, have doing everything we can uh, to make sure that we protect uh, vulnerable Albertans. For example, Roy, we have put in place the Alberta Security Infrastructure Program that would grant $100,000 to help cultural minority communities protect their facilities. We have established the Alberta uh, Hate Crime Coordination Unit. We have appointed a hate crime liaison officer. We are doing everything within our jurisdiction as a province. There are other things that are required that lies in the hands of the federal government, and that includes my call to Justin Trudeau to work with us to amend the criminal code to allow for individuals who are vulnerable to these attacks to carry pepper spray, as well as to implement mandatory minimum sentences. Yeah. Uh, Minister, it's, I understand that people who are vulnerable to attacks motivated by hate need to have the right to protect themselves, and uh, pepper spray is one of those first defense tools that can, I keep using the word irritant because that what, what it is, that can so irritate the, uh, the breathing and the eyes of an attacker that they break off the attack. It's also a tool that is possible, that is useful to other vulnerable people to, to women and, and uh, to older, older Canadians who might be seen as a target of opportunity. Absolutely. In, in a, Roy, the Albertans want action. Canadians want action. Mm-hmm. We have taken action at the federal level. I, want, I mean, at the provincial level. I want Justin Trudeau to take action at the, at the federal level. You know, we, I have always heard them say they are committed to protecting our Canadians protecting vulnerable Canadians. Here is a classical example for them to take action. 
You know why? Uh, talk is cheap. Talk is easy. Uh, you know, uh, we are tired of the virtual signaling coming from the federal government. Now it is time for them to take action. This is a common sense proposal. As rightly said, it is an irritant. It would help vulnerable women ward off the attackers. What are you expecting, Minister, from the Prime Minister of Canada? Have you heard back from either the Prime Minister or the Federal Justice Minister? To be blunt, uh, Roy, uh, this federal government led by Justin Trudeau is not listening to Albertans. Um, Again, my hope is that they follow through on their professed commitment to protect Canadians, their professed commitment to protect minority cultural communities, uh, we have seen increases in attacks against those groups. This is a common sense pro- proposal that would help those communities and indeed any Canadian, any Alberta who feels threatened by these attacks. I, I mean, I am not losing my breath, but you know, I am going on the commitment that I have heard from the federal government that they are serious about combating hate motivated crimes, and this is, one, this is one of the ways to accomplish that. Minister Madhu, what uh, options do you have as a provincial justice minister and solicitor general? You know, you know um, Roy, my, my option is to continue to uh, implement um, policies, programs, uh, uh, put forward bills that are within the provincial jurisdiction. And when it comes to uh, paper spray and mandatory minimum sentences, those are criminal code uh, I mean, provisions that right. requires amendment to the criminal code. That is a federal matter. Yeah. Now, police chiefs in the province of Alberta have expressed some concerns. Tell us about that, please. You know, uh, Roy, uh, it is disappointing to hear from the police chiefs in our province um, expressing concern. And let me also, let me add, it is not all of the police chiefs. I have heard it from individual police chiefs. I understand they have an association I'm expressing concern. I understand they want to sit down with me. I am prepared to sit down with them. But at the end of the day, they also have an interest in making sure that we protect these Albertans and these Canadians. I have asked them, what more do we need to do, do beyond what we have done so far? And so far, they have not been able to put forward um, anything beyond what we have done so far. So my hope is that they would uh, work with us to see the benefit of amending the criminal code to allow for paper spread. There are obviously um, parameters that we have to put in place to ensure that this is not misused. In any case, our, our criminal justice system is well capable to deal with those who would attempt to misuse the paper spray if one would put it in place. Yeah, you know, currently, as you well know, Minister, currently a person using pepper spray as a defensive tool to save his or herself from injury or possible death can, under the Criminal Code of Canada, spend more time in prison than the attacker. <laughs> Roy, it is ridiculous. Why should someone who is being attacked who has not taken a, 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 a life-saving step to protect and to preserve themselves from, from harm or from death, be the one to go to prison rather than the attacker. I would prefer the attacker to be spread than to send it to threaten 
an innocent citizen who has been attacked uh, from, from, from going to prison. Uh, this, this is one of those ridiculous provisions that we have in the criminal code that I think the time has come to get rid of it. Yeah, and it's not a hypothetical situation, Minister, again, as you well know, because I've spoken on the air with Canadians who were criminally charged after defending themselves from home invaders, and these Canadians included a 69-year-old man who defended himself against three home invaders in eastern Canada and in the Atlantic provinces, and he was facing years in prison while his attackers faced far, far less time. So he's defending himself and his life while, after being attacked inside his home, and he's, he's the one who's facing this more serious criminal charges. The whole system has to be looked at, but you're not looking at, at that situation. You're looking at pe- making pepper spray uh, legally. Just, <laughs> Minister, it just sounds terribly reasonable to me. It, it, it absolutely reasonable, and, and, and that is also what, what I'm hearing from across rural Alberta. They are facing home invasion, uh, um, attacks upon attacks, and if you recall, Roy, that was the reason why we made changes to the Occupiers Liability Act in Alberta to to prevent um, rural Albertans who are taking steps to protect themselves, their families, and their property from criminal and civil liability. I think the time has come for us to do the same thing with the criminal code. Major General Dean Milner was the last commanding officer in Kandahar, or at least in Afghanistan, for the Canadian forces. And we've been talking to General Milner over the last number of weeks as he and two of his colleagues uh, wrote an open letter to the federal immigration minister calling for the patriation of the interpreters to this country. General Milner, thank you so much for coming back on the program. And what can you share with us, please, about what you know about the effort that's underway to extricate the Afghan interpreters and their families? Well, first of all, Roy, it's good to talk to you, and, and it's, uh, it is good news. Uh, I think it's, it's very encouraging. Uh, obviously, we've heard from the immigration minister that we are planning to bring uh, those that worked alongside the Canadians that uh, you know volunteered and, and worked alongside of us in, in, in difficult situations, uh, against the Taliban. So this this is very encouraging. Uh, I know that there's planning teams uh, working feverishly uh, both on the ground back here in Canada. And uh, obviously with a situation that they know that they need to get this going fast. And I think uh, the challenge will be now is the devil in the details of of, uh, of locating the interpreters, uh, making sure that we've got uh, the right ones, and then moving them to a location where we can then uh, extricate them. General, can you share with us a a little bit of an idea of the danger these individuals and their families are in? Because I imagine they're going to have to, many of them will have to go from where they happen to be in hiding in Afghanistan at the present time to some sort of central location area, maybe Kabul, where they'll be uh, dealt with as far as getting them out of the country and into Canada's concern. What danger are they in right now? Well, absolute danger. The the Taliban have a number of checkpoints uh, in and around uh, some of the major cities. As you know, they've taken a large number of the districts. Uh, so the Taliban are in, in, in large numbers. So, uh, you know, it's we're not on the ground. So there, there's absolutely going to be a challenge. Uh, we have been able to move some people around. We but we still have uh, some good connections with the uh, the Afghan army. And uh, so we've been able to to do to help some. 
um, but uh, they're going to have to maneuver. I know uh, quite a few of them have already moved into places where that we can uh, we can help them, and we'll be prepared to to take them and their families out. But uh, again, the situation is extremely difficult, and uh, yeah, there there's they're going to be risked for some uh, for sure to to move themselves uh, uh, to where we're going to take them out from. Uh, this is probably a question that uh, you're not going to be able to answer, uh, but but I'm going to ask it anyway because I have to. Is there a chance, is there likelihood that the Canadian military is going to be necessary in this operation some way, perhaps some of our special operators? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are options for sure. They'll, they'll look at a number of different op, uh, options and... Uh, yeah, I mean, would, uh, to take them out, it, it could be commercial, it could be military, we could charter, but there will need to be a capable force on the ground uh, that, uh, you know, prepares and, and takes them in. They'll do some initial medical vetting and, and uh, confirmation of who they are. And uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll need a we'll need a very good team on the ground. Uh, you know, the, a couple of the major cities where we'll be doing most of the work are very secure. Uh, we get that from obviously uh, personnel that are on the ground. But uh, but yes, I mean this will be a this will be a very capable force uh, required to to conduct this uh, operation. And that might include Joint Task Force too. Oh, I I. You know, I don't want to jump out and say that, Roy, but I, you know, if I was a betting man, I, I would say that, yes, I mean, we always send our most capable, highly trained, uh, and, uh, yeah, it's hard to beat them. I mean, they've got experiences around the world. Uh, they, they absolutely could be part of that security force uh, that goes in with uh, with the other teams uh, that that were that are required to, to be there. So uh, I would I would say if I was a betting man, yes. Okay, General Milner, uh, what would you consider to be the greatest logistical uh, and perhaps other challenge to extricating the Afghans from the dangers they face at this particular time? What's the what's the greatest logistical challenge? Well, I I I think the I don't I wouldn't call it a logistic. I think it's going to be a challenges for the um, some of these Afghan interpreters. They're, they're across the country, and as we well know. The uh, the country's not as safe as it was months months and months ago. So, you know, I mean them them and their families. We're not on the ground. Uh, the Americans are not on the ground. They're you know they're in the ground around their their embassy. I think they've still got about a thousand on the ground. Uh, countries are not out in the districts and the provinces. So, you know, the, these uh, poor interpreters are going to have to take risk and they're going to have to move. Um, logistically speaking, you know, it's a matter of us lining up the capabilities, uh, the, the, you know, the aircraft, uh, I don't think that's a problem at all. We easily have, we, we, we train for these kind of operations. So, uh, logistically, I, I think it, it won't be difficult at all. Major Campbell, thank you very much for, for coming on the program. How are you feeling about what the government announced yesterday? Well, I'm, I'm I'm pretty pleased, Roy. I, I mean, uh, it's it, it's positive news. It's it's a positive direction. Canada last is sort of uh, you know the government sat on its hands for quite a long time on this one, given the urgency of the situation. But it's good to see that we finally got some forward movement. You've been in contact uh, with your friend Major General Habibi, who was on this program with you a couple of weeks ago. What are you mm-hmm. hearing from the general? 
Oh, he's 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 um, he's, he's pleased. But um, as I told the general, you know, let's not celebrate until you're here in Canada, um, because there's uh, there there are many hurdles yet to to be surmounted before uh, before we actually get their their feet on the ground here in in safety. So. Um, you know he's 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 cautiously pleased or cautiously optimistic, I guess. Um, uh, you know I've been very very careful all along the way not to to make any promises to General Habibi that I couldn't keep um, because you know I mean maybe the government wasn't going to step up. We didn't know, uh, and so I've been very cautious in my dealings with him, um, being supportive uh, for sure, but um, also being cautious about uh, making promises that I couldn't keep. Yeah. Major Campbell, we, we talk a lot about the interpreters, and, and appropriately so, and they still, in many cases, are going to have to make their way to Kabul, which is going to be a dangerous journey for them, depending on where they are, because that's where the sort of the central uh, location is for getting them out of the country and into Canada. But talk to us, please, for a moment about the importance of the Afghan National Army commanders and the troops that you worked with and how they interacted with, with Canadian forces. Oh, well, I mean, they were absolutely essential to the operation, to the mission. We we tried to put an Afghan face on every operation that we did because, after all, it was their country and their security situation that they had to come to terms with. So, I mean, working with them, as I did um, on a you know daily basis, I mean, I, I virtually lived with the Afghans uh, that I was mentoring and uh, did everything but pray with them, um, you know, ate meals with them, uh, lived with them, operated with them, chatted with them spent time with them i mean yeah we were we were brothers brothers in arms and um, i mean their 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 support to our operations was incredible and uh you know they they would follow us into combat or follow lead us into combat no questions asked and uh i mean you you can't allies like that you can't just leave behind i mean it it's you got to look to the future. Who's going to work with us if we don't take care of the people that worked with us in the last time? You know what I mean. So, this this was uh, this this was of, uh, of of national importance. Yeah, it is because, as you say, there will be a next time, and if we don't bring with us a record of taking care of those who work with us and providing them with some security and safety, then who's going to who will want to work with us? Um, what do you think of the the fact that the uh, the U.S. is now the last NATO nation that's pulling out? They're almost entirely out of Afghanistan now. Um, mm-hmm. That's got to be depressing for for many who, who fought there. It's got to be tough on you. Yeah, it's, you know, um, yeah, you have your moment uh, for sure. As a as a veteran of Afghanistan, I think we've all um, had to come to terms with the fact that. Uh, you know what we did was we bought time for the Afghans and and uh, 20 years of time. So that was time for a six-year-old girl to become a 26-year-old woman, you know, capable of deciding her own destiny. So we gave the Afghans time, we gave them resources, we gave them training, we 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 bought them a, a some what we hoped was some breathing space uh, in order to, to to come to terms with their future uh, without a war going on in the background. Okay. And uh, I think we bought them that time. We did what the government asked of us. Uh, we did everything that was asked of us and more. And uh, we did provide the Afghans with that breathing space. Was it long enough? Well, that's for the historians to decide. But we gave the Afghans an opportunity, and what they chose to do with it was entirely up to them. It always was. It's yeah. their country, their Major, future, their destiny. Major Campbell, thank you very much for the time today. Thanks for all the time you spent with us and for, for what you've done and you do for this country. Thank you, sir. 
You're very welcome, Roy. I don't. I, I think you make more out of it than it is, but I'm I'm certainly pleased that we are where we are with this program moving forward for the interpreters and and our allies right. that worked with us overseas. I mean, this is this is a very positive development, right. and we just need to keep going with it. Canada needs to to fulfill its moral obligation to take care of these people. Yes, sir. My good friend Joe Warmington, columnist with the Toronto Sun, the Sun Papers, uh, was the driving force behind letting all of us in this country know about what was going on with the interpreters. I didn't know until I read Joe's column five years ago. And I I saw a tweet from my colleague and friend Charles Adler uh, yesterday, and Charles said the same thing, that uh, knowing about Joe and reading Joe's column got Charles started, and Charles done great great work for the interpreters. But but Joe really led it all, and... uh, Joe, thank you for informing all of us of what the dangers were that were facing the interpreters because you are the catalyst in getting this thing finally, hopefully, uh, under some sort of resolution. Well, uh, you know what? It's nice of you to say. I mean, it really takes everybody to, to do their part. I think the big key now, Roy, is General Milner, uh, General Fraser, and Thompson who are really pushing this. Uh, they all you know, were commanders in... Afghanistan, and uh, particularly General Milner, I know is going to be on the show again. Um, he was the final commander there. You know, this all started for me in 2011 when I went to Afghanistan, and I had an interpreter. His name was Ahmed, and he saved our life. Uh, you know, not to, to, to over-dramatize, you know, that we were in any major battles or anything like that. We were just moving around the country, all over the country. But Many, many times he said, don't go down this road, don't go down that road, don't go in this building. He just had this instinct, and he also had connections. I'd like to find him um, and get him to uh, Canada. He worked with the Canadians. I can't find him. Um, I don't know what that means. Uh, They tried to kill him before the Taliban. They burned his house down. Um, And so I'm worried about that. But that's where it started for me. And then along came James Akam, who's been on your show many times. And he's in Canada now, and that was the uh, kind of the fruits of our work five years ago. I know you and I and and Charles Adler and, and many others uh, felt that, that James would be the first to get off the airplane in Canada, and there'd be many, many more. And, of course, nothing happened. And here we are five years later, thankfully, and we're just so close to getting dozens of people out of there. Uh, if we don't do it, they're going to die there. Yeah, no question. They are going to die, and they'll die horribly. And uh, General Milner has said that on this show, and he's going to be with us later on uh, today. I admire him so die. much. You know, uh, I admire General Milner uh, and General Frey, all of the generals. But, you know, General Frey, you think about Operation Medusa. Uh, General Milner, you think about the training, the Afghan army, which are really holding uh, tough there, too. Uh, we can't help everybody there, but our prayers to them as well, because uh, they were our partners. We helped train them. And, uh, you know, it's not just the interpreters. And I think that's something good that Minister uh, Mendocino uh, said yesterday. I was very, very pleased with uh, his statement. And, you know, talking about the people that served uh, with the Canadians, not just the interpreters, but people that worked on the bases or people that we trained uh, that are Afghan nationals. So this is going to be a big operation. I don't know how it's going to go. Our prayers are with everybody involved with it. Yeah. It was uh, General Milner who told us two weeks ago, I think, Joe, two or three weeks ago, he said the Canadian veterans who went out into battle with the Afghan interpreters going with them unarmed 
often the first target for the Taliban or the insurgents because they knew if they could kill the interpreter, they would take a vital link away from the Canadians to be able to, to communicate with village elders and to understand the customs and the trad- traditions of the area. Uh, yeah. General Milner said that the veterans, the CAF veterans from Afghanistan, consider these interpreters to be comrades in arms. They're not just somebody who went out with them and worked for them. They are comrades in arms. And you can't have anybody more trusted than in this field of battle. I mean, it's the most uh, you know stark and nasty place in the world that I've ever been to. I mean, it changed my life. And uh, I was just there for eight nights. Imagine these people living there, growing up there, or all our brave troops. You know, for the 158th and a diplomat, 59 that, that died rode along the highway heroes I and mean, we owe it to all of them to make sure that if we're not going to stay you know and, and help uh, save that country uh, there's all kinds of geopolitical things and reasons for that but at least we can get these people that serve with us that, that put their lives on the line you know something else you said about uh, the customs and the different things well, that's all important i talked about the lay of the land you know logistics and just to look on someone's face about turning down a road, they knew all that stuff. They weren't just translators. They were they were really key logistics people. Uh, General Miller knows that. Uh, General Fraser sure knows that, and I know it too. And, uh, you know, it's the right thing to do. Um, it would be wrong. Blood would be on our hands. I don't blame, uh, I think there's a lot of, you know, people that blame politicians and all that stuff. But I think they're trying their best, and I, I think we need to encourage them to do that. No, they're finally trying their best, Joe. Yeah, well, they're well, finally doing what ta- what Canadians I, I, tell them to do. I have plenty of I have plenty of thoughts on the five year wait, <laughs> and even the five year wait before that. Because yeah. I was working on this since uh, I got back in 2011, and uh, it was Cap- um, Corporal Eric Kirkwood, who was on your show back then. He's the one that brought James Account to my attention, and uh, uh, retired uh, Lieutenant Colonel Tony White uh, is who I was in Afghanistan with, and he introduced me to this issue there. And so, so I've been working on this, uh, with other people for over 10 years. So yeah, this is, I, I, I gotta be, I'm on pins and needles about it. Yeah. Joe, tell us uh, a little bit about your time in Afghanistan. What are the sorts of things that you saw? What's, what are the sorts of things you were told? What came back with you? Well, I think, I think, you know, I talked to a little bit with Charles Adler about this too. I, the, the one thing was the three little girls that were walking down the street. I was in this armored car and we were flying by really quickly and I captured this image with my camera of three, you know, I don't know, they were maybe six or seven years old. They were running away to school. They had the school bags that were handed out by uh, NATO. And uh, it just, I mean, everybody loved the picture. I mean, I, I, I still look at it all the time because it represented something, you know, obviously for what, why we lost all our men and women there. And, I, and obviously, uh, you know, the opportunity for people. So that was one of the things. And then I think, uh, you know, after everywhere I went, there was 22 people killed in the eight nights I was there in around where I was. And that wasn't a really big death week for, for Afghanistan, uh, but for me it was. And, um, and I, you know, we went by roadside bombings and we saw buildings bombed. And then after everywhere I went to, the Serena Hotel and Sufi Restaurant and different places where I met people, all those things were later bombed and shot up. You probably remember some of those stories. The Serena Hotel, certainly. Uh, where there was journalists killed and there was all mm-hmm. kinds of Afghan nationals killed mm-hmm. by the Taliban and by um, the other group that was in there. So I think uh, that that was the thing. And I, I also feel really strongly that if you're going to break something, then you own it. And I feel that you know, this is a bigger story for another time, Roy, but 
I just don't understand NATO, Americans, Canadians, British, New Zealand, everybody walking away from these people. I don't understand that. How can we do that to them? Um, you know, if it means 50 years, that's what it means. I mean, we, we kind of gave them a promise and we're breaking it. You know, uh, it's interesting you say this because Major General Jeffrey Schlosser, who was the commanding officer of the 101st Airborne Division in the U.S. military, that storied division that has fought in just every battle, battle really, since uh, actually probably before World War II, he's going to be on this program a little later today. He has a book called uh, Marathon War, Leadership in Combat in Afghanistan, and that's one of the things that he talk, talks about, leaving at a time like this. And if I understand the general correctly, he is not at all in favor of having pulled out as, as Biden is doing now, or as the other NATO countries have done, including no, ours. No, it's, uh, it's really disgusting to do it because there's going to be a lot of bloodshed. But the world's done this before. We did it in Vietnam. That's and true. we've done it in other places. And, and you, you think about Europe after World War II. I know it's a different scenario, but, you know, they, uh, we stayed there uh, for, for different reasons. But the fact that NATO was there for 50 years after the war made a big difference. And, uh, and I think that you've got to make a 50-year commitment. And, you know, yes, it costs money and it costs uh, all our, our, our great troops and things like that. But <clears throat> if you're going to do it, you might as well do it right. They've done it wrong. And, uh, and that's why we're scrambling now to get these interpreters and the support staff out because they're going to pay the price for that. And I have a column on TorontoSun.com, and we almost pulled it down because the guy I wrote about is in hiding right now in Afghanistan. He served with our troops, and um, I won't say where he served and where he is, <clears throat> but he was worried. You know, uh, he, he wanted to do the story. We did the story, and we're sticking with it. But he's taking a hell of a risk, Roy. You know, we talked about, do we want me to take the story down? And we decided for the bigger picture, he decided. I let him decide to keep it up. But this shows you the risk. I don't, I'm not worried about the Taliban getting me, and you're not worried about them getting you. But he knows that they'll get him. We had an interpreter that was uh, killed this week. And, and as you said at the uh, top of the show, you played that clip. Uh, that's real. They will behead people. Uh, they will kill them, um, you know, and, uh, and they are the enemy and they are an evil enemy, and they are lethal, and they have control. I don't know what the number is. I, they, I, I keep reading 80%. I don't think it's that much, but I think within six months, um, you know, the way things are looking with the Americans pulling out, I, I think it's very likely that the Taliban will control most of uh, Afghanistan. And I, I just, you know, just uh, I'm sick at heart about it. Yeah, and that's what uh, General Schlosser says as well. It's going to be a replay of what we've already experienced. Well, we're gonna we're gonna pay for it later. That's that's exactly the point he makes, Joe. That's exactly the point he makes. You're right. And, you know, You're right. Vaccines, masks, all this stuff we're talking about now. Wait till wait till the Taliban get control again. The next ten years are going to be ugly, and then we're gonna have to deal with it again. Yeah. And uh, you know, I covered nine eleven. I was on the air with you from that's New right. York. Uh, I mean, all these things. Every time I talk to you, I think, well, hey, I talked to Roy about this. Or, Right about that, and we're right back to where we started. That's right. We are. Joe, thank you for everything you do, and thanks for coming on today. But we owe you, you, this country owes you, a debt of gratitude for reminding well, us of our obligations. Well, nice to say. I look at uh, the, you know, uh, I'm a cheerleader here. Uh, you know, I don't want to upset anybody in the, any government. Just get it done. Get those people out of there and their families. Global News Headline today. Liberal majority government in doubt as lead over conservatives shrinks. Poll finds. Well, the poll is by Ipsos Public Affairs, 
And Daryl Bricker is the president and CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. He joins us on The Roy Green Show. Daryl is also the author of the book that I keep insisting every Canadian family should have and each Canadian should read, needs to read, must read. The book is next. It's what's going to happen in this country going forward. And since you're likely going to be around for it, you need to read next. Daryl, good to have you with us. What's going on? Well, uh, what we're seeing is a race uh, that I th- people keep talking about getting started is tightening up. Um, so since our last poll a few weeks ago, actually a couple of weeks ago, uh, the lead between the Liberals, uh, the Liberals had over the Conservatives has, has shrunk by half. So they've gone from 12 to a six-point advantage. Uh, so that suggests that, you know, we're going to get into an election campaign and the likelihood is that things are going to even tighten up further. So I guess the, the, the fundamental journalistic question is why? Well, I think the reason is because what's happening is that um, where the government gets its highest grades is for its management of the pandemic. And as people are starting to feel that the pandemic is getting into our rearview mirror, they're starting to uh, move off of what was the most important issue back onto the issues that were uh, actually sort of the most urgent issue back onto the issues that they perceived previously as the most important. And things like the economy, affordability, those kinds of things. And quite frankly, the government doesn't score that well on, on, on many of those issues. Other opposition parties or opposition parties are seen as, as preferable on some of them. So what happens is that the, that the race tightens up as people focus on those other issues. So we have the Liberals now at 36 points, the Conservatives at 30, the NDP at 20, which uh, leaves the bloc in, in Quebec as... Uh, as a significant player in that province, and uh, from the Global News story and from your research, if the Liberals are going to try to recover from this downward turn, they're going to have to look at three provinces particularly, Ontario, Quebec, and British Columbia, correct? Correct. So let's go through each of them, Roy. Uh, sure. So in, in Quebec, uh, what's happened is that the Liberals are in a fairly tight race. I think they've got about a five- or six-point lead over the, uh, the Bloc Québécois. That's frankly, that's not enough, um, because... What that shows is the Liberals are probably doing a little bit better in seats that they already have. So they need to, they need to expand that lead if they're going to uh, generate any more seats. And, and the reason for, all, for this election is, they're having this election, is to, is to get a majority. Um, so they need more seats. You get to Ontario, uh, the Liberals have about an eight-point lead over the Conservatives. Uh, they were much further ahead than that in the last election campaign. It was double digits. Uh, and particularly in the 905, which is where they won the election campaign. We haven't split out the 416 and the 905 in this poll, but when it's as close as 8, it tells me that it's uh, fairly close to tied in the 905. That's a problem for the Liberals. And then when we go to British Columbia, the Liberal Party is in second place and the Conservative Party is in first place. That's the only other place where there's a significant number of seats that they can win. And right now they're trailing, uh, they're trailing the Conservative Party and look unlikely to pick up seats in, uh, in British Columbia. So is Justin Trudeau the problem for the Liberals? Well, I think it's a combination of things. I think it's, it's Justin Trudeau himself, but it's also uh, the issues agenda that the, uh, that the public is confronting. And so when they look at things like, for example, the economy, uh, back in, the, uh, when, in 2015 when Justin Trudeau uh, won his majority government, he had a double-digit lead over the Conservatives on the economy. Right now he trails the Conservatives by eight on the economy. That's not good. No. On affordability um, and cost of living, he trails the NDP. Healthcare, which tends to be a nonpartisan issue, and by the way, the most significant issue Canadians tell us, uh, is it, it, it's, it's pretty much a, a nonpartisan issue in the sense that nobody really thinks that any of the parties can do a great job, but the Liberals have a bit of an advantage. This election will not be about healthcare. 
And then that leads us into things like climate change, where the liberals have staked out a pretty big claim. But the Green Party, in spite of all of the disruption that we're hearing about, continues to lead on that issue. So the, the problem that they've got is the uh, issues that they would really need to dominate in the campaign, and they were probably counting on, like management of the, the COVID crisis, are going into the rearview mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a, well, let me back this up. In 2019, the Liberals won uh, government with the lowest popular vote percentage in the history of this country for a winning party federal right. So if there is a low voter turnout in 2021, is there an opportunity for an O'Toole minority government? Well, that's where it starts to get very interesting, Roy. Very interesting indeed. Because um, the reason that the Liberals have did well in 2015 and then did well again in 2019 is that turnout was at historically high levels in the modern era. Stephen Harper won his majority when turnout was at its lowest, very lowest. It was about 59. In the last two election campaigns, it was about 68. So the Liberals have been able to communicate to the uh, Canadians, particularly progressive Canadians, that the election had consequence and that they needed to get behind them in order to stop the Conservative Party. At the moment, the public doesn't believe the Conservative Party is going to win. They don't particularly see them as a threat. And what that means is that uh, the usual liberal strategy of marginalizing the NDP by scaring progressive conservatives, by uh, scaring progressive voters about the potential for a conservative government, that's not really a strong strategy at the moment. If that happens, turnout is low. The conservative base is high. They're more likely to show up and vote, they tell us. Uh, anything can happen. And this is not, a, as you say, Canada is not about a national vote. It's regional voting that decides. Yeah, it's a series of regional campaigns. So the thing that I'll be watching over the next little while is do we see any movement in Quebec? Uh, are the Liberals able to get back into double-digit territory in the province of Ontario? And are they able to move into first place in British Columbia? If they can't do those three things, very difficult for them to win a majority. Well, I can't wait for the goodie package to arrive. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, it's on the way, Roy. We'll be doing lots of polling for Global uh, through the election campaign. We'll be able to share all of these insights with, uh, with your listeners and uh, uh, everybody who uh, interacts with Global News over the space of the next few weeks. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.